Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus, funded by the Australian Research Council, about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, I work in New South Wales, and lately I've been writing exams. And I'm Yasmin Spendler, I'm based in Brisbane, and there's been a lot of thesis writing in my life lately. Equus is the Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, and in this podcast we're talking with a range of Equus researchers working in universities across Australia. The title of this episode is Systems, because that's in the name Equus, Engineered Quantum Systems, but it's a really broad and general word. So we're going to see what we can do to find out a little bit more about quantum systems. Yeah, Lachlan, I am so excited about this episode, you know. As quantum physicists, we are obliged to be kind of a Heisenberg fangirls and fanboys, which puts us at one side of a pretty deep chasm, which on the other side has, you know, Einstein and his theory of uh, gravity and general relativity. And, you know, that is not to say that we are gravity deniers, but at the present moment, one of the biggest unsolved problems in physics is that the theory of general relativity is inconsistent with quantum mechanics. So in one sentence, I think I would say that general relativity explains the behavior of everything around us by describing both space and time together as some kind of fabric, so a geometrical entity, which gets modified or warped, if you will, by gravity. And so a very important consequence is that the force of gravity can modify not just the physical location of objects, like when things are falling or moving under attraction, but also their experience of time. So in other words, it makes time relative and even uh, malleable or modifiable. Now, the cop-out that we have been hanging on to for the past decades is that the two theories work simply on very different scales. So gravity and general relativity manages everything that is daily life-sized and up, the trajectory of our planet through the galaxy, black holes, the origin and the evolution of the entirety of the universe, yada yada. Quantum mechanics, on the other hand, manages everything that's very small and no one has actually really seen because it's per definition unobservable. Today, however, we have here Magdalena Zick from the University of Queensland, who is both a quantum and a general relativity physicist. So, Magdalena, how is this possible? Uh, what's going on? That is a very good representation of uh, how we've been viewing quantum and gravity. Yeah, exactly as you said, gravity, big objects moving through the universe, through curved space-time and, and time being malleable and all these weird and wonderful effects that somehow we thought had nothing to do with quantum physics, which is essentially describing every, everything else um, that we know about nature. And so this was for a long time a realm for philosophers or maybe people like Hawking studying, oh, what about these black holes? And then discovering there's a quantum radiation coming out of them. But if you actually want to see it, you need a black hole that is actually smaller than the moon. Otherwise, its radiation would not be distinguishable from the microwave background. So it starts to be really 
a, a weird regime. But then quite recently, a realization came that, you know, the, the quantum systems that we have are not just small. They can be extremely precise measuring instruments and that they can be more precise than any other instruments that we've built before. And so one of the aspects of general relativity that you've just highlighted, and that's really crucial for, for my work and for uh, the question of how that's possible that we can kind of think of these two theories finally side by side, is um, the notion of time and how we can measure it. I, I just want to jump in here. So relativity is something that people often think of as a little bit weird, time dilating or changing. And quantum mechanics is something people often think of as a little bit weird, uh, entanglement and, and Schrodinger's cat being alive and dead, and some of those things we're exploring in this podcast. But they're both backed up by measurements, right? General relativity is pretty robust. We, when we've measured the universe, it seems like that. And quantum mechanics is also pretty backed up by observation. That, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, that is that is exactly right. We've uh, observed quantum effects that are uh, bulletproof quantum, so uh, where you put a um, theorist-approved uh, stand that it's not something that you can ever put in a box of classical physics. Uh, and with general relativity, the same. We have measurements. We even have technology like the GPS, where we know we have to include general relativity. People might have heard about um, discovery of gravitational waves and how they indirectly also confirm various types of uh, black holes and neutron stars orbiting each other and warping space-time dynamically. So gravitational waves from this perspective of space-time being warped by gravity are really waves of space-time. Um, so these things are not speculation in a sense, but we have empirical evidence um, that to our knowledge is best explained exactly by those strange concepts. That's so cool. You you mentioned quantum systems for measuring those things. And I'm interested to know your work. Do, do you work with these systems in a lab? Do you do more theoretical descriptions of them? What, what comes to your mind when you when you say that phrase, quantum systems? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm a theorist. So for me, a quantum system would be um, rho or psi. So this is how theories describe a state of a system. So, you know, a mathematical sign that encapsulates my knowledge about the state or what I care about the particular system. So yeah, rows and psi's are my uh, vanilla flavor uh, quantum systems. What, what I think it's, it's, it's really uh, crucial in, in my work as a theorist is the realization that I can have a quantum system that is a very precise clock. And if I have a very precise clock, I can ask how this clock will be affected by these effects that uh, Yasmin mentioned, that time can also be changed or bent or affected by gravity. So yeah, if um, this is an unfamiliar concept for someone, um, general relativity has this concept of time dilation. And if anybody's seen Interstellar or some other sci-fi movie, you may recall characters that first hover on some spaceship above a planet, and then one of them descends down. And when the character climbs back up from this very massive planet, they are actually much younger than the colleague that stayed on the space station. It's one way to tell a story of, of twin paradox in the context of general relativity rather than uh, maybe more familiar story with special relativity. Um, so this is just to say that time passes slower near a massive object than further away. And so if you have a very precise clock, 
such as clocks we use for the GPS system, they would be sensitive to those effects. So these are effects that we have measured with, with clocks that we use for, for technology, even everyday type of technology, when you just want to ease your mind and just let your favorite navigation system take you through the streets. Or perhaps soon let your car drive you through the streets on its own. Oh, that would be that would be so fantastic. I would I would very much welcome the opportunity. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to that. Yes. And so we hope that's going to be possible even more precise localization systems that uh, will not have an error of a few meters, but you know, maybe just a few centimeters. A few meters if it's about hitting pedestrian or not. That's too much. We can't afford it. <laughs> and that's why people are interested now in the context of quantum, uh, because this allows you to build a more precise clock. But since we've been talking about this uh, time dilation effect, that's exactly how you can kind of wedge in the deep question about quantum and gravity. You can now ask yourself, if I have a quantum system and it can display one of these weird and wonderful effects of being superposed over two different places at once, how would it measure time? So you can ask a question, and a couple of years back, maybe it would be a completely sci-fi question, but because of all the push in the technology that we want to use for real stuff like self-driving cars, uh, you can ask, how would my quantum system that represents a clock behave if I put it in a quantum superposition state simultaneously on a surface of a planet and far away? So in a sense, you are talking about the quantum-only child instead of a pair of classical twins and it's simultaneously traveling on the surface of the planet at staying at the station. And so essentially, quantum theory uh, allows you to finish the parable saying, well, you know, if you have a traveler that is simultaneously older and younger than themselves. That sounds fun, but now as a theorist... <laughs> it sounds mind-bending. <laughs> I would hope somebody would like to write some sci-fi story based on that. Um, contact me if you're planning to write. Um, <laughs> But so as a theorist and having all the tools that we developed for describing quantum theory and general relativity, now we are in a position to try to answer these questions quantitatively. And this is how we can start to come more near to the fundamental questions, uh, kind of writing on, at least on the promise of, of highly precise quantum clocks. Magdalena, can I ask, so the um, idea of your research is that you have a uh, an object, which is a clock, which is subject to both gravity as well as quantum mechanics. So I'm imagining that that object for you is very abstract. Do you have an idea of experimentally what that actual object is? Like, is it an atom clock? What would the options be? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, because in fact, I think it touches at the heart of what I think is possibly successful program that, that we can start addressing these questions. And this is what, that we think operationally. So exactly when I write my raw or psi, I need to make sure there is something out there in the universe, you know, in the lab, potentially like yours or Lachlan's, that, that we can experiment on and verify some of these predictions, that it's not just, you know, entertaining ourselves with mathematics that might be, you know, interesting in its own right, uh, but that might not have a very clear counterpart in, in the world out there. So when I think of a clock for me, a model system is an atom. Uh, and the reason why you can think of it as a clock is that atoms have energy levels. That's something maybe people are familiar with. Maybe in chemistry you learn about orbitals and how different types of atoms differ from one another and how they are internally structured. And so we can use these internal energy levels of an atom to make the atom act like a quantum sand clock, for example. Just go between sand up, sand down, just, you know, in its atomic way. 
And then I also, you know, have a position of an atom and it's a small system, which is important in that if I want to abstract away any, I would say, technical difficulties first related with the fact that, you know, gravitational field uh, in any, you know, actual real place, it's not perfectly homogeneous, it changes. So I want to have some very small system that I can always say, well, no, it's, it's of course finite in size, but it really, you know, sits in one point. So I want to be able to assign some, some point to its location. And then, of course, I can ask what if it's in superposition over different points. But I don't have to care, uh, you know, what is its actual spatial size. And then it has these internal states that I can think of a quantum version of a sand clock. And so atom is perfect. If people heard about pins, they could also be used. And if I want to speak really more experimental language and think closer to how one could make an actual experiment, I would even add it would be a strontium atom. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things that I'm noticing is that, you know, from your perspective, the the idea of a quantum system, you're you're just digging right in to find the the sort of the essential properties of a quantum system that are common or fairly similar across a whole range of different physical implementations. You've talked about spins and atoms, but I wonder if you could do the same thing with photons, which are quantum particles of light. Ah, that's such a sneaky question. Um so, yes, you can. Now, a little bit more tricky. So photons have polarization. If anybody watched any 3D movie or has polarizing glasses, this is all possible because uh, light and photons carry polarization and the different polarizations can, can cancel each other and you can use that to block light of various properties. But this uh, polarization doesn't really function in the same way as energy levels of an atom. So I can't really make a sun clock out of the polarizations. However, because photons are compelled to move at the speed of light, I can use position of my photon, kind of a continuous version of a sun clock. So a sun clock which has infinitely many different positions and this corresponds to where my photon is. And it's a little subtle because, um, you know, if photons always move at the speed of light, then what would I learn about its position? But because space-time can be bent by gravity, this actually means that where photons are does depend on gravity. They can bend and slow down. If your photon passes very close to a massive planet and you observe it from far away, it will look like it's slowing. And so that's, that's the analogy between a twin aging slower. Here the photon just goes slower. So you have this race between photons and actually photon that has to come closer to a massive planet gonna be lagging behind. So this is a sense in which you could also use light, but it's a very sneaky question. Okay. <laughs> well, those are cool things to know about photons anyway. Um, Magdalena, how does someone get to be a theoretical quantum physicist pondering these things about when quantum states and quantum systems operate in relativistic general relativity and gravity. I guess what, what's interesting to me is when did you start being interested in this? What steered you in this direction and how did you get to be where you are? Well, that's a, it's fun that you ask. For the audience, I haven't seeded that question, but it's actually a very cool story for myself <laughs> because I started my PhD on a different topic. It was related um, to how quantum information can be represented uh, essentially within the context of elementary particles. Um, so that didn't really have anything to do with gravity, but there were two visitors at my institute and a paper discussed on the journal club of a different group where I went because I didn't know many people and I wanted to get to know other PhD students. So I hopped on to a journal club of uh, experimental quantum optics group. 
And people were discussing a paper in which people were claiming that certain effect that has been measured 10 years ago can be interpreted as time dilation of a so-called Compton frequency associated with an atom. Now, for theories, Compton frequency is essentially a way to write mass in the units of frequency, but it doesn't mean that there is anything that actually changes in time that could count time. So this kind of, you know, lets you scratch your head and it's just something doesn't add up, something doesn't add up. Um, and this was very soon followed by a wonderful talk by Danny Greenberger, who is one of the most original thinkers in quantum foundations, and who was talking about similarities between proper time and, and spatial degrees of freedom to positions, arguing that, you know, um, the way I write my rows and psi's for position of a twin, I should really write a row and psi also for time. And I thought, no, that also kind of doesn't really sound right. And then there was a third talk by Harvey Brown, a philosopher of physics and a physicist himself, who was talking about how we actually neglect the interpretation of general relativity. Quantum physicists argue a lot and argue even to the extent of having, you know, almost fistfights about how to <laughs> interpret quantum physics, what this really, really means. Um, we don't have similar fights about general relativity, although we could. We always think of general relativity as describing curved space-time, but one could backtrack a little bit this interpretation, say, well, the second is just some weird field, but, you know, in physics we are used to weird fields, quantum uh, electromagnetic field that describes visible light and radio waves, it's also a field. And gravitational one, you know, it's, it's just a little more stranger, but it's still just a field that lives on some space-time as, as we knew before. It just kind of, you can't really separate it. And so these three things uh, combined together essentially allowed me to put a finger on, on the following question. If I want to say that some quantum system measures time in superposition, I have to have a way to encode that measurement somehow in some state of a quantum particle. And I knew it cannot be, you know, kept for time because that just wasn't squaring up. And then I realized, well, you know, when... Uh, when people actually measure time, what they do is they have some atoms and they have their internal states and they use some laser to, to probe how these internal states work. And that's essentially what set us on, on, on the course to explore exactly how time and gravity combine in the, in the context of a, of a quantum traveling twin. And this was really a proper coincidence of, of various things that, that just clicked uh, in the right moment. And I think that wouldn't really happen if any of those three elements was not present. Wow, that's cool. That Your answer has really highlighted something that I've thought about before, which is the fundamentally the creativity of doing physics. I think a lot of people sort of go to school and they imagine that science and maths are in some ways the opposite of doing an artistic creative thing like making a video or recording a music piece or something like this but the more I get to experience physics and science and maths the more I realize that that distinction is so wrong <laughs> the the creative imaginative inventive philosophical sort of thoughtful process of of doing these things is so intriguing yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it's true. Sometimes maybe people that are not exposed to science beyond school, probably they think, you know, that there is somewhere some master book for the universe with all equations and physicists just, you know, flick through the pages to find the right one. <laughs> and there is never a question how, you know, we look around and apart maybe from natural numbers, you know, where we count leaves on the tree or something like this. We don't really see numbers. There isn't any fundamentally an equation. And I think it's one of the big philosophical questions, you know, how... How it, does it happen that mathematics can describe the universe? It's, it's not so obvious that, that it's possible at all. And, and I find it really, actually probably the most rewarding aspect of my work, 
uh, where I can see that some mathematics can describe the universe and maybe in a way explain something that we didn't know before. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Magdalena. For me, it happened around the, the last year of my bachelor, so my third year of studying physics. Then you really get to the point where you have also kind of had enough math, uh, in particular like Heisenberg math and linear algebra and that kind of stuff where you really discover that almost new science, or at least for you at that point, because as a student, you're, <laughs> you're rediscovering some of the discoveries that have been done long ago, but you really see how science is produced by the equations, not by the person handling them. <laughs> For example, many writers say this about writing, like, oh, the story was already there. I only kind of pulled it out. <laughs> It's quite similar to me with math in quantum mechanics as well as math in um, general relativity, that you really see the physics is produced by the math. Yeah. Um, Magdalena, your accent gives you away just a little bit that you, you may not have grown up in Australia. What are some of the interesting places that your work in science has taken you around the world? Yeah, that's right. Um, my accent is not particularly Australian yet. Uh, I come from Poland. That's uh, where the accent is from as well. I guess for some, this would be already a pretty exotic place to do physics. And I did my master's there. But obviously, that was just... Uh, I grew up but uh, as for conferences um, I mean usually there would be some some uh, kind of academic town or place where you go um, on my PhD I mean I often during summer traveled for conferences and took just a little bit of, of holidays but after a while uh, uh, with my partner we accumulated so much holidays and we thought okay let's do something with that and so from Vienna Uh, we set up on this trip that was um, first a couple of weeks in the in the States, specifically in Alaska. So we went through some valleys where nobody went before, just with a map and everything wet after the first hour because it turned out to be swamp. Um, <laughs> and then we flew to Kamchatka where we were hiking some glaciers with bears. And then we took a Trans-Siberian train um, and uh, we went to Moscow and, uh, and Belarus. And so two months after... Uh, we ended up in Warsaw where we have some colleagues. And so we visited them and two of us were pretty malnourished and our wardrobe was in a rather horrendous state after two months of essentially um, crawling through bushes with birds. And um, yeah, we had this uh, day of, of meetings and physics discussions. Um, and then we went back uh, to Vienna. We actually ended up in the morning. So we went to the office. And we were joking, okay, now we just file for a, uh, you know, for a business trip. Uh, and we collect all our <laughs> two-month worth of um, hitchhiking through Alaska. And yeah, we kind of were joking. We collect all this uh, to justify a trip to our colleague from Warsaw. That is like an hour of, of, of plane from Vienna. <laughs> we just went the, the wrong direction. So I, I would yeah, always think of it as the, as the coolest and the longest physics trip. <laughs> we actually did a little bit of editing some paper uh, when we were on and off the internet during that trip because it was not possible to be fully offline for two months. You probably still only spend seven days worth of per diem on this two months <laughs> by eating four, four berries that you found on the bush per day. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now that you mentioned, I have to admit that I didn't realize it was just before uh, we started the most remote part of our hike in Alaska. So we were for 10 days, uh, really in a place in, in some valley where nobody hiked before. There was, there was a road, but there was like a car per day. And this was the car that we hitched the ride there. Um, and once we set up 
the camp and everything was really wet uh, so we were really looking forward to some warm food i realized that i lost the valve to our um, gas cartridge to heat up the food and everything was so wet and it was uh, above the arctic circle so there were not even plants like you know that we could lit up a fire so for 10 days uh, we had all this uh, you know dry food that you just add hot water and it becomes a warm <laughs> meal and we couldn't use any of it so the bottom line is we lost some weight <laughs> Well, I think that there could be another entire podcast series about the the various activities that science PhD students get up to that result in the losing of weight. Uh, people uh, people go through all sorts of hardships to to get the science and learnt. So that's an amazing story. I thought I had a bad time, but I have just been, you know, like eating in the cafeterias and uh, you know drinking two drinking two special lattes per day. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I know now what I what could have been. <laughs> Magdalena, there's a question that we've been asking everyone on this podcast, and it's because it is a podcast. So we we can only hear uh, stories and, and anecdotes. We can't be seeing and touching and feeling and experiencing things so much. Given that it's an audio experience listening to a podcast is there a sound that you can think of uh, that for you is connected with the idea of quantum or quantum physics do, do you have a sound of quantum well actually the, the sound that really comes to my mind is probably a bit accidentally related to quantum but um, there is this group in in vienna that's, that's where i did my phd that is doing interferometry uh, with molecules this means they are demonstrating that molecules and they use bigger and bigger molecules can be really observed in this weird quantum state of superposition of being you know, two places simultaneously. And so um, they made a little video uh, where they show how the signature of that effect, the interference pattern, is being built up molecule by molecule. And since um, this is a group based in Vienna, as, a, as the background music uh, for that video, they used uh, the soundtrack from the movie The Third Man. So this is the movie, I think, from the 50s <laughs> that happens in post-war Vienna. There is Orson Welles uh, playing there. Uh, and the music is played on the sitar. And so when I think of quantum, I see these uh, dots. So these are red uh, kind of fluorescents on some screen where molecules hit. And I see these red dots popping, first seemingly randomly, but then they build uh, this regular pattern of stripes uh, dark, uh, bright, dark, bright, that uh, is the signature of quantum effect. Uh, and I hear this sitar being played um, in the background. That's, that's <laughs> the sound of quantum for me forever. That's fantastic. That's really cool. It, it, is, um, it is remarkable how music can get strongly associated with things. And I, I've heard many students who, who listen to particular music while they're studying and then they, they have you know vivid recollections of that particular topic they were studying if they hear that sound. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this episode. So thank you so much, Magdalena. Thanks for coming and sharing those cool stories and that amazing research and all the best with it for the future. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for your time. And uh, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully we've been able to make at least a bit of that as clear as quantum, or perhaps even clearer. To learn more about quantum physics, explained by experts in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. And until next time, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out. Mm -hmm.